Can everyone really lead? What does that look like? Hi, I'm Chris. And I'm Brianna. This is the When Everyone Leads podcast. We're coming from the Kansas Leadership Center, an organization that recently published a book called When Everyone Leads. Leadership is something you do, not something you are. Leadership is about putting the challenge at the center and working with other people, not just taking charge. We've been sent on a quest. This book inspires us, but how do people actually put it into practice? How does this apply to civic issues? What is clear? What is messy and complicated? This is When Everyone Leads on Education. Randy Watson, Commissioner of Education for the state of Kansas. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, thanks for being here. And what's the issue you want to talk about? I mean, I think I have a pretty good guess, but it's your choice as guests to talk about the issue that's on your mind. Weather is always good in Kansas, but maybe we ought to talk about education and education policy and maybe (laughs) things going on both nationally and regionally and statewide around K-12 education. Tell us about your connection to this topic and why it's important to you. Obviously, it's important to you because, hey, it's your job. You have a title. You have decades in the field. But maybe could you take it a little deeper? Why are you so passionate about this? You've worked hard for years to really get the state to think about education and think about opportunities for the future. What's driving you? What makes this an important topic to talk about right now? I was really lucky. I knew in seventh grade, I wanted to be a history teacher. I wanted to coach basketball. And that's what I did. And as I started to teach and work with young people, I thought, well, maybe I can have a little bit bigger sphere of influence. So I did what many people in education do, became a principal and then assistant superintendent. This was never part of the plan to be commissioner. But at the heart, I think, and soul of what drives me is that we're trying to impact students and their families and better the trajectory of their life. I tell young people all the time, especially high school students where you have these type of conversations, I tell them, you know, for the first 16 years of your life or however old they are, somebody else wrote your life story for you. You were along for the ride and you had some input, especially as you get older, but it's been pretty well written for you. And now the rest of your life gets to be written by you. And so getting them to think about how do we own that and how can we do that and how can we plan for that and how can we make sure that they're prepared to do what they really dream of doing and want to do. And so I think that's what drives me every day, even though I come to work as the commissioner of education. I really am a student person at heart and a school person at heart. You knew what you wanted to do so young. What piqued your interest in education and teaching? That's a great story, too. My grandparents on my mother's side, my grandmother in particular, was the matriarch of our family. And they did not have formal education, even though my grandmother was a hospital dietitian, which would require a master's degree today. She had gone to work there in high school as putting food on trays and just worked her way up. And so throughout the 1970s, and she retired in 1985, she always felt that hey, I'm really not worthy to have this job because I don't have the education to have it, but I have it because of my work experience. I remember she sat down the cousins. I was one of the older one of the cousins 
and said, I think all of you need to go get education. I think you need to go to college. And if you want to think about being a teacher, it's a noble profession. And I think that inspired me. And several in our family have gone on to become teachers. And so I just, I think, had this drive probably from her and others that I wanted to be in a position to help young people reach their dreams. And I think that's what then drove me at a fairly young age. Still does. And as Chris said, I was going to joke about this, Chris, when you use the word decades. You've been doing this for decades. <laughs> he did emphasize that word, now. didn't he? Well, I've been doing my job for decades, too, if it makes you feel any better. so It's hard. It's about every single kid. So we have almost a half a million students in Kansas in public and private accredited schools, pre-K-12. Literally, every day that I come to work, I think about those students and how we can impact their lives in a positive way. Education is a big topic, and we only have a limited amount of time, and there are lots of different directions we could go with this. So I'm curious, when you think about the topic of education, what concerns you the most? I'd say in 2023, I wouldn't have said this five years ago, it's the politics of it. We have become very divisive over the general topic of education and a lot of subtopics within that, both at a national and at a state level, and even somewhat at a local level that I never saw in most of my lifetime until probably COVID and then continues after that. So I think that how we politicized what for many, many years was a non-political entity called K-12 education. My mom's a teacher. So I, uh, (laughs) here in Kansas too, here in Wichita, Kansas, (laughs) she's a kindergarten teacher. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Teachers that have really my heart our early childhood pre-K kindergarten teachers. If mm-hmm. you want to talk about people that work hard, yes. go try to do that for it. Oh, and absolutely. then middle school teachers. You got to be special to be a middle school teacher too. So thank you. Thank your mom for doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. I know that you know this. They just went through conferences this past week. She has been having a problem with one of the parents throughout the year. And I had asked her if that had been more frequent now that things have been more politicized and you've been hearing more about parents going to school board meetings and raising a lot of heat there. Have you heard of any of that here in Kansas? Or has that been more other states that you've possibly heard of and you're nervous of it getting into Kansas? Well, I think I certainly read about it in other places, but it's happened here. And I think in the urban and suburban markets, it's maybe a little bit more prevalent than it is in our rural communities. We talked about the politicization. I think what's changed, combinations of things happen at one time in any era. COVID is a not even a once in a generation. That was a once in 100 year phenomenon. But it's happening during a time in which social media is becoming such a big part of our life. And so the ability to disperse information is at such lightning speed that that convergence of that, I think, led people, and this is one of the things I find interesting from a human nature, to distrust people that they knew really well. People that teach your children, people that you go to church with, people that you're neighbors with, we don't trust them anymore because I heard or I read, and I think we're still trying to work through that and still trying to get back at it. I'll just tell the personal story. I got thousands of emails during the COVID time, either great job, most of them weren't great job, if you could guess what was happening. But one of them was someone that I knew extremely well. Our kids were the same age, they were in school together. And I got this almost form email and I just picked up the phone and called and said, couldn't we have just picked up the phone and had a conversation? And, oh, yeah, I thought about that. I find that interesting. So, you know, I think in a different era, 
we would have said to a teacher or people we knew at church is, I have a concern. Can we just talk about this? But we seem to come at it really mad already Mm -hmm. because of some things we've already read or heard. And I think that that's different. If we got this moment right and we got past this to kind of a dream version of the future for being less divisive, what would that look like to you? What would be the kinds of things that would be happening that aren't happening as much now? I think it comes back to a few things, conversation around people about what do we really want, not slogans, not things that we have read about. I read sometimes about education. I have to stop and go, I don't know what they're talking about. I need to go a little bit deeper to understand what is the issue that someone's maybe upset about. So I think a conversation with a building of trust that I can trust you that I'm not going to be harmed by that conversation, but we can come to a resolution together that will make sense for possibly students or grandkids or whoever we're maybe working on. And I think that's what's lacking. We're jumping to quick conclusions based upon limited information that we're getting from, and I say biased sources because as you both know, and we all know really well, any of our social media is a biased source because we only see who we're friends with and targeted by how we do a click in Google. So, you know, Chris, what you and I see on Twitter, what you and I see in Facebook is not the same. We all have a biased view that we come to. And I think we're coming to those conclusions too quickly without having what I call good, honest, wholesome conversation with our community members around what's important. I want to say the majority of the people that we've interviewed have had that same premise that things have been more polarized. Social media has had an aspect in that because what you can see and what you can't see. One thing that I have seen on social media, because like I said, my mom is a teacher, so I know the back end of it and I know what she is required to teach and how she's required to teach it. So whenever I hear things like, oh, they're putting their own politics into the education in my mind. I'm like, that's ridiculous. They have certain things that they're required to teach that they have to do. They have certain books that they're required to teach from, especially elementary schools. So I wonder in the age of social media, how can we combat that? Let's have that conversation, right? (laughs) Yeah. That's what the Kansas Leadership Center, I think that's what we're all about. How do we figure that out together? Because we're going to have to do it. The social media, the smartphone is such a wonderful device. It does such wonderful things, but there's a downside to it. And I think you just mentioned it. I've never been in your mother's classroom, Mm -hmm. but I can just tell you on any given day, she's teaching Apple, She's teaching phonics, phonemic awareness. She said, you know, it's probably not good that you hit each other, right? Let's, Absolutely. Let's You're trying to teach some proper skills. And that is what happens in kindergarten as we start to develop. But I think if we all say we always have one of what's best for young people and where are we not accomplishing that? And then can we have a conversation about that before we both arrive at preconceived ideas? How we get there, I think it's difficult. Mm-hmm. I don't know the mechanism to do the community forums anymore where people just don't shout at each other. Mm. And I think we can continue to try and spread that message. And hopefully as more and more people come to understand the limitations of our technology and social media, they'll understand that maybe a return to some of those concepts we had in the past are good while we take, I can Google this on my phone really quick and I can get a map. I don't have to do a Rand McNally and he'll tell me where I'm going. And there's all kinds of great things. So 
I'm hopeful, but I just don't know the exact vehicle that we're going to get there. Yeah, I almost think every single community meeting now needs a designated shouting booth so people can go shout into the booth before the meeting starts and get all of that out of their system and express themselves and then come for the discussion. Like it feels like a lot of people don't feel like they're being heard or valued and any occasion that allows them to express that value, it's hard to resist. And they just want to be heard about something that they feel that people aren't hearing them on. I think it's an interesting time, but we've always had interesting times. What I do know is that in the evening, you don't go home or in the morning and get a daily newspaper, of which we all read the same local regional news. You don't go home at six o'clock and listen to Walter Cronkite either preceded by your local news or followed by your local news. Most people are getting their news off of social media. And again, that's a biased source for every one of us, regardless of how we get that. I'm hopeful, but I think it's going to take a lot of work for us to come to grips with what's happened. One of my next questions is what gets people stuck in the gap between these concerns and aspirations? What I'm hearing in that is that one of the barriers to having better conversation is a lack of commonality, like a lack of a common starting point for us to come from? Well, I think the common starting point, Chris, is in our business, let's use children. We all want what's best for that child. I think where we quickly then is, I'm not sure though that what you want from my child and what I want is the same. In fact, Mm -hmm. I've read that it isn't the same. Mm -hmm. So let's be confrontational right up front before we have a conversation about that. I haven't met a parent that doesn't want what's best for their child. I'm a parent, but sometimes that can be very passionate because those are your kids. And now as a grandfather, I'm thinking maybe it's even more passionate when you're a grandfather, right? It's an intellectual and an emotional response. As an educator, it's more of an intellectual response with a little bit of emotion. But as a parent, there's a lot of emotion you bring to that because it's your child and you want to make sure that your child has the very best education possible. As a parent, I can relate to that, that I want what's best for my child. But in your role, you have a different question to answer. You're trying to answer what's best for this whole system that's trying to educate children. Do you feel a tension in there? Yes. I think when you're not talking about a common set of values, I know in my era, if you got in trouble in school, and I did sometimes, I was petrified to go home and I wanted to go home and tell at least, hey, I need to tell you this story before the school Mm -hmm. called because the punishment at home was going to be so much worse. It wasn't going to be, I'm going down to that school and straighten them out. It was, I'm going to straighten you out because that school had to be doing what was right. I'm not sure that we always agree on that today. Again, that comes back to, to trust. I watch young people with a cell phone that can be in the same room with each other, not having a conversation. They're all texting. So there's an isolation factor that happens with social media too. And you couple isolation and COVID and we're talking about things that come together. I think that those things certainly had an effect on us. You've already mentioned a few different factions. You mentioned parents, educators, the kids. Are there any other factions that are involved in this issue? Sure. Political parties and gaining office. I think you see that play more on a national and then a policy scale. And then that plays in how things react locally. So I think all those play a role. But again, I think about my schooling. A, you were sent to a public school, which I was, elementary school. You were expected that the teacher is in charge. I don't think anyone thought they were perfect. They have your best interest at heart and you're going to do what they say. 
I think we just come at it differently. So Chris, I'll come back a little bit because your specific question was this kind of individualization. I want what I want. Does that coincide with what we have to do for the collective? I think we're trying our best to personalize this experience. But in a class, and Rihanna, I don't know how many students, but 20, 25, probably in your mom's kindergarten class. So how do we personalize that experience for every child while we have to teach within a group study? I constantly look at other businesses and how it may relate to us. I constantly think of the medical as one of those professions. But when I go to see my doctor, when I'm in the room with him, it's just me and him. It doesn't have 20 other people that he's talking to at that time. While a kindergarten teacher may have 25 in a classroom, we are trying to personalize that as it relates to where's that child academically, where's that child behaviorally, what do I need to work on today to help him or her become more successful. But I still have to manage this group as a group within the six, six and a half hour, seven hour day. So there are tensions, Chris, to get specifically back to your question around how we do that. And so I think we're also looking at the structures of education And we've worked a lot with the Kansas Policy Institute on our thoughts around how do we redesign the system, the way school actually operates, to try to personalize and individualize that even more for parents and students. It seems like another faction that might be worth talking about that feels particularly challenging right now is educators themselves and teachers. I've heard about two teachers who are under 30 who've left the profession in recent years for a variety of reasons. And it seems like there are real challenges having the people in the classrooms that we need to have there in order to have those kinds of personalized experiences for students that you're interested in providing. We do have a teacher shortage, or I call it an educator shortage, from superintendents to principals to teachers to even bus drivers. The economy plays a big role in that. We have almost full employment. I will say this. I've said this before. Someone asked me today about the teacher salaries and is that having people leave the profession. Salary is always an issue, I think, of any job. But when you look at teachers or you look at health professionals like nursing or you look at clergy you look at social workers, those are all people that, while the specifics differ in their job, they all want to help people. And so what you find at the heart of really great teachers and educators is if you simply say thank you and I respect you, that goes a long ways for keeping them in the profession. And when they don't feel that, Chris, then I think money even gets heightened. And so when they pick up a tablet or their phone, and they see the news about schools are doing poorly, they internalize that. They must be talking about me. And then they don't feel that respect. not saying that was the way it was intended. That's the way it's getting received by so many teachers. And that's what they tell me. So if I don't feel respected and I don't feel that you care that I am trying to do the best job that I can and you're not thanking me. And by the way, I'm not making much money. Maybe I just ought to do something else. So I think they all come together. One faction that you've tried to engage during your tours of the state has been the business community, which has been influential. I'm curious about how well we're doing at engaging that voice right now. And are there other new voices that would help to have in the conversation or who's not as engaged as they could be right now, but it would help if they were more engaged? The business community has been outstanding starting with the Kansas Chamber of Commerce to local chambers to local business leaders from large corporations 
by Spirit or Cargill to mom and pop shops, shops that have five employees. They've been great. And they've told us we have a lot of young people, whether they graduate from college or just high school, that have this skill set that they don't have around employability skills, soft skills. We call them a lot of things. And so we've been talking a lot about that. I think for us today, and Brianna talked about her mother just came off parent-teacher conferences. That's got to be at least a 50 to 60-year-old tradition. We let school out. We have it in the evening, a combination. Parents come in and talk to us. And while there's nothing wrong with that, that's not really a good way to engage all the time. So a parent sets at home and doesn't really know what's happening in the classroom. And once or twice a year, I get to go in and maybe have a conversation with my teacher for maybe 30 minutes. That would be a long period of time. At the high school or middle school, it's usually in a gym where you know, other people are around. So I think if we're looking at who aren't we engaging well, we have to think about how we're going to engage a conversation with parents again and community that do not have kids in school. Those two. I think we're doing pretty well with our business community right now, honestly. They've been great partners. But I think how should we engage parents in a different way, really engage them in conversation around what they want out of school. And then patrons that do not have kids in school that also are formulating ideas. Well, schools aren't what they used to be when I was in school because I read this and engaging them. I think those are the two groups I wish we could engage better. What makes it hard to reach those people? And what would it look like if they did get engaged? My home is still McPherson, Kansas, where I was superintendent for a number of years. And we still live there. And in fact, our kids live there now. It's really great. And you take a town the size of McPherson, which in, in Kansas is a mid-sized town, but it's small. And the history of those communities would be that most people would be in a Lions Club or a Kiwanis, and they're doing the blood drive. And by the way, we all go to church, maybe different denominations. We had all these factors where there was a lot of social interaction, even neighbors, you know, would get together and do things. And now service clubs are diminishing. No one's joining those. Participation in church activities have diminished. Neighbors don't get together nearly as much. Some people don't even know their neighbors. I'm talking about small towns. I'm not talking about our urban markets. And so I think that has changed dramatically opportunities to interact with each other when there's not an event that's occurring, right? A specific event is not as great as it was even 10 years ago, much less 20 or 30 years ago. We're all busy. People are working, moving kids to soccer practice, to piano. And then, oh my gosh, if your kids are young, maybe I've got adult parents that I have to go take care of also because they're not in good health. We're extremely busy. But this ability to interact with other people, maybe outside of our immediate family or a very small group of friends, I think is not as great as it has been in past years. Are you ready to start putting the idea of everyone leading into practice? Join us for a new one-day program based on KLC's best-selling book. Sign up at kansasleadershipcenter.org. And don't worry, you won't have to listen to my voice or Brianna's voice teaching the whole day. We'll be delighted to have you a part of the When Everyone Leads community. Assuming that things are getting better, what would you like to see happen in the next five to 10 years in education in Kansas? What sort of conversations would we start having that are harder to have now because of the division that we might start having and might help us make progress? We have a fast-changing economy. Chat 
GPT just blows me away. Oh, me too. Uh, yeah, see? I just I, was reading about version four. Yes. Yeah, it'll do everything. You can put in a drawing and it creates like a web page. And I'm like, whoa, this is going so fast and changing so fast. So education is going to have to be different to produce students that are going to be in a different environment. Business tells us that all the time. There's a nostalgic around schools that we all have. Garfield Elementary in Coffeeville, Kansas, where I went to school. It's no longer a school. It's a church. But there's something reassuring when I back home by just driving by it and seeing it and allowing me to reminisce. These schools are products of us growing up in our youth. And growing up and having our youth is, for most people, this important time that we resonate and experience with. So there's this pull to take us back to a simpler time. And there's a pull from business to say, but we need a different work environment and we need a different student. Even in Wichita, our largest school district, there's still neighborhood schools, especially elementary, that would serve a broad neighborhood or a magnet that would serve a limited number of students. Let's bring families, and many of those are business people, and business people, and let's just have a conversation so that we all get on the same page. I think that would even be as beneficial as parent-teacher conferences so that we have it. The challenge is we're so busy. We're so busy leading our lives, and most of us are working one job, two jobs, and if we do have a two-member household with kids, usually both are working, and that wasn't always true where someone was at home. So if you could ask parents, whoever you are, parents, and if you have grandparents, right, it's an extended family, bring them. We're going to have a conversation. Invite the business leaders of that. We're just going to have a conversation about here's what we're trying to teach. Here's what we need to have support at home for. Here's what the business community needs. And by the way, if you're a first grader, by the time you get to be a ninth grader, that's likely to change dramatically because, Brianna, I don't remember chat GPT being on the horizon in my world five years ago. And it's exploded, <laughs> right? It's just exploded. So, yeah, it's it, really interesting that you say that because it makes me think about the difference that my nephew's education is compared to how mine was, compared to how my mom's was, which is our three different levels. My mom did not have calculators and she thought that it was cheating when calculators came out, the graphing calculators and all of that, and I had the graphing calculators. Well, now chat GPT is out and my nephew's telling me that it'll create a whole essay, no plagiarization. I was like, that's cheating. So now I'm in the same position that my mom was in when it comes to the growing technology. And then my nephew's taking coding classes in the same middle school that I went to that had no coding classes back then. So it's really interesting to see the direction that our education system is going and how are we gonna combat how easy it is to cheat at this point. We come back to what do we need to happen in this conversation. It's engagement of the conversation. Let's feed everyone hot dogs and ice cream. That'll get people out a little bit more. And let's have just a conversation. This is what we teach. This is what it looks like. This is why. This is what we see today. This is what we're going to see in the future. And then we can talk about things like chat GPT, things about books in a library. We can just honestly talk about these things in an environment where we also get to know each other. And I think that would be so important. But it's hard because... Your mom's teaching school every single day. So there's a limitation of time that all of us are finding, I think, hard to deal with as we think about how we're going to integrate this. But again, I'll come back to technology. And I had this in a slide that I hadn't used for years, and I just used it literally in a presentation I gave the last couple of weeks. If you think about 
from the time Alexander Graham Bell said, Watson, come here. The phone really only had about three basic models for 100 years. It was a crank with a speaker. Then it <laughs> yeah. became a rotary dial. <laughs> then it became a push button. But all those had a cord to it. It was on a wall. It was on a desk. We had the princess, the trim. Then when the cell phone came out, specifically the iPhone, that just totally changed the game. But that was 100 years of the technology was so slow and advancing. The speed of which technology changes our work environment today is so fast. And Brandon, you're saying it. So someone old like me looks at it and goes, wow. (laughs) I hear younger people going, wow. They're coding in middle school. They are. We didn't even know what coding was. And yet almost all of our automobiles, of course, your home controls, refrigerator, all have these electronic circuits that are programmed by someone to run. And when they don't, the check engine light comes on as very different. It seems to me, though, one of the interesting dynamics is we have all of this technology, which in theory saves us time, which creates time, which allows us to do more things. We don't have fewer hours in a day than the people than in the 50s and 60s and 70s had. But if we're not making time for conversations, is that really a question of time or is it a question of values, that we aren't valuing those conversations or we aren't putting enough value in things that don't have an immediate impact or take slower to have gain? Like, I just think there's an interesting question of what we value. And if we're not having the conversations we need to have, how would we have to reorganize our values in order to make them more possible to happen more often? I think that's a good point. I think that's worth exploring, Chris. I don't know whether it's a priority, a value. Certainly, technology does save us time, but we've filled that time with other things. Maybe it is a value. Maybe as a priority, but again, let's have a conversation about that. Because at the end of the day, what is important? When I go back to my grandmother, I, I started with her. My grandparents were conservative, but they said to us, you're going to vote Democratic. What? Franklin Roosevelt got us out of the Depression. And I want you to think about this. My parents lived in a Depression. My grandparents had no job. They left Kansas to go work for a job. So my grandmother and grandfather said to me, always value a job, show up early, work late, be happy that you have a job. Give to people that don't have what you have, your neighbors, your church people. And when your country needs you, whether to ration or go, you go, go serve your country. That was really valuable. That's not a Democratic or Republican value, but it was Franklin Roosevelt that they admired for getting them out of the depression because they didn't have any work. They didn't have any way to support their family. Where do you see our opportunities lying for education? I think our brightest days can still be ahead of us as we think about these opportunities. Young people still want to do something really remarkable. They still have dreams. They have aspirations. And I think we can help them get there. So I'm optimistic, even though we have challenges ahead of us. And I think the challenges, it's just going to make us really have to think, how will we solve these issues that we have. I am optimistic that our best days are still ahead of us in education. As Chris said, maybe we just start looking, what do we really value? What's really important to us? And let's start with that conversation and then work backward. Being pre-K through 12 focused, having high schoolers go into college, is that something that you focus on? Well, we directly oversee pre-K through 12, but the transition into what we call young adulthood is really important. We believe most of our young people will need some training past high school. The economy really drives that. Mm -hmm. 
When you look at the market in Kansas, that economy today is about half a baccalaureate master's PhD market and about half is what we call a skilled labor market. And then there's some unskilled labor, certainly, but that's only about 25, 30% today. The better paying employment in Kansas still relates to skilled labor market. So we're trying to hit, hit those marks. What we see is that we've done a really good job over the last several years of increasing that skilled labor non-baccalaureate market. So the number of welders, the number of CNAs, the number of people that don't have a formal degree. But what worries us a little bit in the pandemic, in the last couple of years, the number of students going on to four-year degrees has dropped significantly, especially among young men. We won't be able to sustain that long-term. So you probably have heard over the past decade, well, we should value every profession, not just those that go to college. Absolutely true. And I think we're doing a really good job of that today. But we also have to say we do value four-year college. Mm -hmm. We do need engineers and we do need teachers and we do need accountants and we do need doctors. We need both. It's not an either or. And I want to make sure that we don't swing too much and say we're going to get all skilled labor. That's non-baccalaureate bound but the baccalaureate bound is going to drop. And nationwide and even throughout the state, we saw that in the pandemic. Now, we'll see in the class of 2022 what they end up doing here in a few months. And we hope that balance comes back a little bit. Hearing you talk about these issues, it just strikes me that in our society, we put a lot on the shoulders of education. So many societal changes and so many challenges. I don't think that lets you off the hook for anything, but I do wonder, do we put too much on education and do we have more work in the rest of society to think of ourselves as partners with education and not putting so much on the shoulders of educators? It has to be a partnership. It starts with parents. They're the first educators. They're the most important. Yes, it's a student, but if you look at who wraps around that family, whatever that family looks like for that student, educators, the teachers in the school, and then the business community layers around that. And we all have to be in sync going down the same road to get to the desired outcome. And as we started this whole conversation, right now, we may not always be in sync with you. What do you hope people listening to this podcast get out of it? If they wanted to do something or take an action in response to it, what do you hope they do? First, I want them to have a sense of hope. Our better days are ahead of us. Second, get involved in your local school. If you're a parent, volunteer if you can. Even if it's a day a month in our agency, we allow you to volunteer. If you want to go substitute teach one day a month, go substitute teach. Ask your employer, do you give any time off? And if so, can I go be in the school and just volunteer? Get to know your teacher. Become heavily involved in that. If you don't have kids in school, get to know the kids that are in school and get to know them. And again, volunteer. If you'd like to think about substitute teaching or teaching, we'd love to have you in the profession. But overall, have a hope in become engaged in your school and your community. We need all of us. Kansas leadership motto is we can lead from anywhere. And we're asking people to do that, including in education, every single day. So the interview is over, and now we're on the balcony with Julian Marin joining Brianna and me on the microphone. One thing that I sent to Marin and Neha in the background here is I noticed a lot 
of competing values, whether it was in the faction stuff and what's making it across the desk. There felt like a lot of layers there. What struck me in connection to the book is a way that we can hide or minimize value conflicts is often time and money, and that came up, and that's just a natural human thing to do. It's an easier thing to blame time and money than actually digging into what's the root of the problem here. Where are we placing our resources? And maybe we aren't being as intentional as we could be about that. I thought, Chris, that one of your last questions is extremely provocative. Are we putting too much on the backs of the education system? One thing I remember seeing in particular at the start of COVID is like, oh, the schools fed our kids and now they're home all the time. There might not be enough food for the kids. And then there was the broadband issue and all these other things that are on top of it. But in itself, is the education system a safety net? I wish we could wrestle with it more at some point. How dependent are we on this system that's underfunded, (laughs) under-resourced, and gets a lot of heat for things that are outside their own control? I can understand why the education system is more polarized now than what it was before, because now I think parents at this point are like, okay, well, before we were letting the teachers do a whole bunch, and now I've had a year of experiencing some of what they think that teachers experience, and so... In my opinion, some of them think that they are now the experts in that field (laughs) because they've taught their kids for a year and now they know what the teachers go through when in reality, you had your kid in your home for a year. The teachers have all of that times 20 in their classroom every single day of every other year. So imagine what the teachers are going through and that's not where people went. Where people went was, well, now I'm an expert in this too and now I can tell you what to do more than what I used to tell you what to do is what I think. Yeah, it has me thinking we are too quick to judge ourselves at experts at something by doing something for a little bit of time. And I think it brings us back to this question of diagnosis. When we find something that makes us mad, our first reaction is what Randy said was fire off an email and say, you're doing this wrong. And I wonder if a default behavior that more of us should adopt is when we get mad, instead of firing off the email, if we're gonna write, ask a question. Ask people, this really upsets me. What led you to do this? What is your intention? One of the things we talk about in the book is that everybody can ask powerful questions. Mm -hmm. Well, what if we made that the first thing that we do? When we have an emotional reaction to something, ask a question. There was just this story in the news the other day about a reporter in Florida who got a press release that he felt wasn't very fair or balanced, and so he sent a response, and his response was, this is propaganda. (laughs) And he got fired from his job after the politician's office complained. And it just made me think, what did he feel was the value in that statement? Why not ask a question first? Mm -hmm. And maybe he wouldn't have gotten the right answer, or maybe it would have underscored his preconception of what it was. In a world that's so complicated, and in a world where so much is going on, we're really quick to think that we're experts at something when may not know as much. And so why isn't a question the first thing we ask when we get emotional about something or we feel something is really hitting those competing values that Julian talked about? And I wonder how far that would go just asking a question rather than a loaded statement with educators. Would they be more willing to stay in the game like Randy said? 
Yeah, and I think it can make people feel seen. I just heard this story about these two politicians on different sides of the aisle, and this one politician had been pushing for a really significant change and was kind of facing a lot of criticism for it. And this other politician just said, I disagree with you on this, but I really want to have a conversation with you about why you feel the way that you do, because clearly there's something that's really important to you there, and I want to understand it. And the other politicians started crying because that person felt seen. What would it take for us to just ask a question rather than assuming? Like, I, I don't know what that would take. I think that's really what's in the gap there. If we're talking about people as individuals, nobody wants to be the dumb one. That's a hard statement coming out of my mouth. Nobody wants to seem like the lesser intelligent person, the not so much in the know. No one wants to feel ignorant. It's a lot easier to say that you're an expert and that you know your stuff than admit that, okay, I actually don't know this. I do think that there's pressure to have something quick. It puts us at a deficit more often than not because the quick thing isn't always the right thing. Probably more often than not, it's the very wrong thing. Mm -hmm. But to hit pause for long enough is also a huge gamble, especially if you're mm. not used to doing it. So I'm thinking about how we live in the age of algorithms, and so <laughs> we have these finely tuned codes that predict what we want to see on social media. And we have all of these records about ourselves that exist that didn't exist in generations of the past. If you meet me somewhere, how are you going to find out about who I am? You might ask me a question, but probably more likely than not, you're going to Google me or go look at my LinkedIn or go check out my Facebook. And so you're going to build this roadmap of who you think I am based on the things that you see. You're going to get a sense of, oh, he's a journalist. This says this about him. And, oh, he went to this school or he lives here. And so you'll have this story about me without ever even talking to me <laughs> mm -hmm. or knowing my story. Being able to set that to the side and realize that there's something there that's true, but it's not the full truth. Mm -hmm. Just because you can Google it doesn't mean it's true. The whole truth. So I actually struggle with that a lot. Just me as a person, I'm like... Don't portray yourself on social media as something. If you don't want people to think that you are like that something, there is many people that I've talked to, they're like, well, I portray myself on social media the way that I would like people to see me, but it's not who I am. So why do people look at my social media and assume that that's who you are? And I'm <laughs> like, in my head, I'm like, what's because you're putting it on social media and you're saying this is who I am? I've actually been given the advice multiple times, post minimally, Especially since we're out in the community so often now, I don't want anyone to know anything about me. Yeah. I want people to guess, not to be able to say for certain, it's like, oh, this person is a really progressive person. It's like, oh, maybe this person's actually conservative. He's talking about 2A stuff now. I have an allegiance to what's for the common good. That doesn't necessarily mean I have it for what team do I play for, because mm. I think that hat switches all the time. I think that makes it really hard to partner with somebody like me who doesn't put that out. I want to say that social media is not the enemy. The algorithms behind social media are the enemy. We have had Facebook for many, many, many years at this point. I remember when Facebook first came out. And the way that the algorithm has changed from then to now And no is, more poke wars. Come on. I, I miss the poke war. I miss the poke wars, what too. Never, what about Farmville? <laughs> who, was a, who was a Farmville person? Farmville is still a it. thing. Okay, it's yes. still a thing. Farmville oh, wow. is still a no thing. No past tense there. <laughs> She's playing it, like, after this meeting. She might be playing it right now. <laughs> no, no, I just know that it's a thing. So. <laughs> but back then, you used to be able to just see the most 
up-to-date things of all of your friends. Now the algorithms have changed for you to see more polarizing things or things that you actually believe in. So if you like more things that are about certain things, or if you like more posts from a certain person, then you'll see those people more. And then you'll also see the subjects that you've liked more. So that's the way our algorithm is set now, which is why out of my thousand plus friends, I only see 10, 15 of them ever on my feed. The way that it's set up on the back end and the algorithm aspect of it is what's keeping us polarized. I feel like we need an episode and when everyone leads on social media. We definitely do. That would be interesting. Mm -hmm. Getting back to education. I had thrown out the question about higher learning because I knew that the stats on higher learning were dropping. But I wasn't sure if people thought of it as a negative or a positive because there has been a lot more emphasis on getting certified in something. I really liked why he emphasized why four-year degrees are important still. Yeah, it made me want to go interview high school seniors, men, boys. Mm-hmm. Why aren't they going to college? That just feels like such a strange trend. Mm-hmm. Why is that happening? I, don't I wonder if they're it. going more towards trade schools at this point because yeah. they're less expensive. You can start working earlier. I'm 28 years old and I'm still getting my master's degree and I mm-hmm. still have years to go before I am done with my education. So I can see why people wouldn't want to go through all of this to get a doctorate degree. How many men are in your classes? There are more females in my. So my experience, culturally speaking, I've had conversations with family and friends, especially when I started interning here, where it wasn't paid. I had a lot of pushback of like, why are you doing anything for free? Go take more hours at the warehouse. Even when I started the highest paying job, but it was where I wanted to be. We know that right now we need the money. Culturally speaking and historically speaking, men have been the ones that have been looked at to be the providers. So it would make sense that they would be like, okay, competing values again here. I want to get an education and I want to become a doctor, an engineer, blah, blah, blah. But also I have to think about starting to save up money for a family that I want to eventually have. I want to provide for myself. With some families, some cultures, I need to worry about also taking care of my parents and all of that. So, yeah, it can be a lot on a young man being 18, trying to navigate that. Yeah, I'm struck by the power of the stories and the narrative that we tell about things. Randy brought up for a while, we were saying, we don't need to push four-year degrees and any post-high school plans. We don't need to push anything specific. And so people kind of followed that. Mm The power of the stories and the way we talk about things matters. And I think how we talk about education in particular, we often have pity or say, oh, being a teacher is so rough, but we don't really stop to talk about the impact or the importance of the profession as much. It also occurs to me, this one discussion has had a really wide spectrum of things that we've talked about. And it feels really hard to talk about education without touching lots of different elements in society. It's like education is this focal point of which we put a lot of stuff into. We may just need to figure out how to think about that as we talk about education and also look for ways to be engaged that aren't those points when we're most directly impacted or mad. If education is so important to society, then why aren't more of us contributing to the conversation? Why aren't more of us engaged? If we isolate it to just being about schools and teachers and what's going on in the classroom, it can leave a lot of us out. And we may need to just change our framing and think about it as a broader issue because what we've talked about 
right now, we could probably go on for another two hours oh, yeah. talking about this. This has been the When Everyone Leads podcast, co-hosted by me, Chris Green. And me, Brianna Griffin, with production support from Marin Berblinger, Julian Montes, Neha Baruala. Learn more and order a copy of When Everyone Leads at kansasleadershipcenter.org. Suggest a special guest for the full season of the When Everyone Leads podcast. Connect with the Kansas Leadership Center on Facebook and Instagram at Kansas Leadership Center or on Twitter at the KLC. Remember, leadership starts with you. Onward. On the next, when everyone leaves, (laughs) a two-hour debrief.